Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Jenny Skoog in New York City. On each episode, we talk with biographers about their work. This time, Dr. Aidan Levy talks about his book, Saxophone Colossus, The Life and Music of Sonny Rollins, published by Hachette Books in December 2022. We recorded our interview on February 21st, 2023 via Zoom. It seems like Sonny Rollins needs no introduction. So who is this so-called saxophone colossus? Sonny Rollins was born in Harlem on September 7th, 1930. And starting at a very early age, he burst onto the jazz scene in what many people think of as the golden age of jazz and developed relationships with a veritable who's who of jazz history, including Miles Davis, Charlie Parker, Thelonious Monk. He once played opposite Billie Holiday. Just about anybody you can name, Sonny Rollins was involved with that person going back really to the 1940s. So he forged a seven decade long career and eventually became known as the Saxophone Colossus, which is a name taken from a album he recorded, uh, an album he recorded in 1956. That was not a name that he assigned himself. It was a name that the record label Prestige Records assigned to him, and it stuck. And I think it's an apropos name because very few people in the history of jazz can really touch what he could do on the saxophone and uh, as as a composer. So his gift for improvisation, I would say, is really unmatched in the history of the music. You credit him with the reason that you picked up the saxophone in your own life. What eventually led you to write this biography? I did always love Sonny Rollins' music, and the first jazz album I bought with my own money was Saxophone Colossus. Back when I used to go to the record store in the center of my town, and that was a place where uh, you wanted to be. That record store is long gone now, but yeah, I listened to that album so many times that eventually it started to skip. I bought it on CD and I just remember loving the introduction to his rendition of You Don't Know What Love Is and St. Thomas and Hearing Blue 7. And as a young saxophone player, he set a standard that I knew I would never meet, but something to aspire towards, still something to aspire towards. You write two biographies, one of Patti Smith, and the other one of Lou Reed. And then you write a biography of Sonny Rollins. Why did you choose to write those two biographies before this one? In other words, it sounds like Sonny Rollins has always been there for you. So tell me about that process of the order of things. The Lou Reed project is something that I started in about 2012 before he passed. And it just seemed like uh, something that would be a a fun project at the time. I didn't know if it would actually become a book. But in terms of writing about Sonny Rollins, that was another pipe dream. And both projects 
when I think about them now, I'm kind of surprised that I, I wrote either of these books. Uh, the one on Patty Smith is a collection of interviews that I edited that was published by Chicago Review Press, which did the Lou Reed book. And that's part of a series called Musicians in Their Own Words. But uh, why did I do Lou Reed first? I mean, I don't, I don't know if I have a great answer for that, except for I was just always a fan of his music as well. I think that music was speaking to me in a certain way at that time that made me want to work on that book. But it's not as though they were unrelated in my head or that I, I'm not deeply engaged with both of them and their music. It's also not as though I, I was only writing about rock and, and then I suddenly turned to jazz. So I had done a little bit of both really going back some years. But yeah, the, the one on Lou Reed, um, I didn't have quite as much time to work on. So I, from start to finish, that was maybe about three years. And the book on Sonny Rollins, I worked on for about seven years. But well, they're both kind of iconic New York artists. And more specifically, I can say they both worked with Don Cherry. I know Lou Reed was a big fan of Sonny Rollins. Uh, Lou Reed actually skipped part of the release party for the Velvet Underground reunion album to go to see Sonny Rollins at Carnegie Hall. So there was that connection there as well. I felt they both were deep thinkers who wanted to use their music for spiritual purposes to enlighten listeners. And when you look at their lives, they both had early struggles that they then overcame. So I view the Lou Reed story and the Sonny Rollins story both as redemption stories in a sense. And that was inspiring to me. So as a biographer, I wanted to learn more about what motivated them and how they overcame those struggles. What has it been like to write about living subjects? When I started the Lou Reed book, he was still alive. And I was hoping that I may be able to interview him at some point for the book. And I researched it for a while and started conducting interviews. And when he died, I wasn't sure if I would continue with the project. But I decided I'd been working on it for quite a while at that point, and that I would do the book as a tribute to his life and music. So it wasn't quite the same as with the Sonny Rollins project, where Sonny is still alive. He's 92 years old. And uh, in that case, I reached out to him first and foremost to see if he would approve of my working on the project. And uh, I was very surprised that he said, okay, I could work on a, on a biography. That doesn't mean that we were collaborating on, an, on the authorized biography of Sonny Rollins, but I just wanted to see if he objected or if he would be okay with my interviewing people and if he would also participate himself. And the answer was, yes, I could interview anybody. He would participate in some form. I wasn't sure how or to what extent. And I was very surprised that his participation exceeded my expectations. In terms of interviews, I was able to interview more than 200 people. So that was also exciting. That's fascinating. So when you reached out to him, was that the first time you had ever spoken with him? I first interviewed him in... 2012, when I was writing editorial content for Blue Note Records. 
And I was just very inspired by the conversation, moved by it. Uh, he is such a spiritual force and so kind of compassionate that I uh, became even more fascinated to learn more about, about his life. So I had met him before I started the book. It was at that point that the thought popped into my head of how exciting it might be to work on a book on Sonny, even though it would be such a tall order to try to in any way do justice to his career. But we had spoken before I started the book. I started the book in, hmm, I would say like late 2015, right around the time that the Lou Reed book was published. So I reached out to Sonny and it, that was just to tell him that I was thinking of working on this and I was planning to apply for a fellowship at the Leon Levy Center for Biography. And still at that point, I, I wasn't certain I would be doing the book and I knew that it, it would be years off if I were to ever do it. So I was very surprised when I got a call from Gary Giddens, who was the director of the Levy Center at the time, uh, that I got the fellowship. So I, it was not until that, that moment that I knew that I would be writing this book. About seven years later, here we are. Many of our listeners seek funding for their own work. So what advice do you have for future applicants at the Leon Levy Center for Biography? It's such a coveted fellowship. Yeah, I, I know that funding is always a challenge. So my first bit of advice, I guess, from my own personal experience is to have a contingency plan and maybe some other line of work that you might also be in that affords you the time to write as well. I also have a background in film production and worked as a union prop person for many years in New York. And I could oftentimes pick my own days that I worked. So in terms of filing applications for things, sometimes I would work it out that way. I was also a doctoral student at the time that I applied and finished that degree recently. I was at uh, Columbia University. But in terms of what to put into an application, I mean, it would really have to be on a case-by-case -case basis. And to be perfectly honest, I've never served on the selection committee. So I know that tastes shift year to year based on that. And everybody has their own critical biases. Some people like more of a kaleidoscopic biography that goes off on tangents and offers more of a social history. Other people like to stay more tightly focused on the subject. But I decided to focus on one particular period of Sonny's career for my application. And that was the period immediately preceding what became known as his bridge sabbatical, which is when he disappeared from the jazz scene in 1959. And it turned out he was practicing on the Williamsburg Bridge. Instead of writing on that period, I decided to focus on the period immediately preceding that. So I looked at his first European tour, his first trip to Europe, which took place months before he went on this sabbatical. And I did extensive periodicals research going into microfilm archives of American, but primarily European periodicals, French jazz magazines, for instance, looking at others. I did a couple interviews and I wanted to put together a sample chapter that I felt would be comprehensive and offer a real slice of life of that period, something similar to what I might do for every chapter of the book. 
as it turned out, I, I went quite a bit deeper in the actual book, but I think I came relatively close to what the final chapter turned out to be just in that application. Uh, so I would say just for people interested in that fellowship or others to pick a area of the book that you think is both compelling, but also one that you feel you could research with whatever resources you have at the moment. So for this, I didn't undertake any travel because I didn't have funding for that. Uh, it was just something that I could use, do using library resources. Now, it was extensive research that I did, but as I said, something that if you don't have funding for the project that you could do just with whatever's available to you at the time, that's what I would say is my, my best advice for working on applications. Anything else would have to be case by case. You structured this book in two parts, using the analogy of the bridge that you talked about between two very distinct phases in Sonny Rollins' life. Can you tell us what the bridge is, both literally and metaphorically? I know he went to the bridge to perform. You use this as a motif throughout the book. So tell us about this bridge analogy. The bridge for Sonny meant many things, but I'll talk first about the Williamsburg Bridge itself. So in 1959, after he did return from Europe on that tour, he became concerned about his own performance. He was really at the top of jazz polls and the critical establishment had finally embraced him as the leading tenor saxophonist of his generation, but he didn't believe the hype. So with the support of his wife, he decided to take a break from performing and recording. They were living on the Lower East Side at the time, and he was taking a walk one day, and he stumbled upon the Williamsburg Bridge. And when he walked up on the pedestrian walkway, he thought this might be a good place to practice what he thought of as a woodshed, a term that jazz musicians use for a practice space where they would woodshed or undertake a process of woodshedding or shedding. And for Sonny, this became also a kind of shedding a second skin and also the perfect place to practice at all hours without annoying your neighbors. So he was working on technique on the bridge and documenting practice exercises that were very comp uh, complex, but he was also working on his physical health and doing other kinds of exercises, chin-ups, that kind of thing up there. And during that period, he was very invested in developing his spiritual uh, side. So he got involved in Rosicrucianism and began looking deeper into Eastern religion. When he ended that sabbatical in the fall of 1961, he emerged with more confidence and more clarity of vision. And he felt that he was able to represent jazz as a positive force in the world, which was something that he dedicated the rest of his life to. But the bridge also takes on another meaning insofar as you can think of Sonny Rollins as a bridge from bebop to what became known as free jazz and a bridge between, at this point, many generations of jazz musicians. So the book is divided into those two sections of before he went on the bridge and, and afterwards. But there's a campaign that's been going for a long time now to rename the Williamsburg Bridge, the Sonny Rollins Williamsburg Bridge. That's called the Sonny Rollins Bridge Project. And there's an ongoing petition 
to attempt to convince the New York City Council to approve that renaming. And I know that many people around the world already think of it as the Sunny Rollins Bridge, but it would be nice if that was formally recognized as well. So did you go into the writing of this book with that bridge in mind or those two parts in mind and using the bridge as the bridge between the two parts? Or did that sort of organically happen as you wrote the book? It was somewhat organic. I I think with biography, if you finish the book and it looks exactly the way that you envisioned it before you started, that you probably didn't go deep enough. But in terms of a rough outline, I had an idea that the bridge would be a focal point because how could it not be really? I wasn't sure how much material I would find on the bridge period. And I was really surprised by everything that I found in Sonny's archive at the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture. And there was also extensive documentation of what he was thinking about during the time that he was practicing on the bridge. And these beautiful love letters that he wrote to his wife, Lucille, who later became his manager, that they were like ships passing in the night for a while where he would be on the bridge in the middle of the night and he would come home sometimes maybe after she had already left for work and they would just write these letters back and forth. Of course, they still saw each other quite a bit, but it was this kind of magical period for Sonny. He felt like he was in heaven up there and he actually didn't want it to end. So I think there was a touch of sadness when he felt the responsibility to come back to performing. So when I started the book, obviously, I knew that I would cover the bridge period. I just didn't know how much there would be. And when I worked on that application, I knew that I didn't want to start there because I wasn't sure how much information I'd be able to find. Whereas prior to that, things like tour dates, you know that you'll be able to at least assemble a chronology of of sorts. But I, I was surprised that there was so much material for these periods that are not as well documented by the press. So that that was nice from the perspective of a, a biographer. Anytime that you can move past press accounts, get more into, for instance, journal entries or correspondence is always kind of what biographers dream about. I also received a letter that Sonny wrote a college student during that period who contacted him for a term paper. I don't know how he found his address, but he did because nobody really seemed to know where Sonny was. Some some people, I think, had the address. The prompt was something like, I want to write a term paper on the state of jazz. He didn't expect to get a response, but Sonny wrote him this like seven-page handwritten essay in response to his query. And he was a college sophomore at the time. And he talked all about, as I said before, his vision of jazz as a positive force in the world, as a diplomatic force, having more representation on major concert stages and the connection between jazz and politics that for him was a crucial part of the music. So that was just one document that went into the chapter on on the bridge and thinking about what that represented for Sonny. Your first draft of this manuscript was nearly as long as War and Peace. So how were you able to cut out more than 300,000 words? That was a daunting project, but I never thought that the first draft of the manuscript should be published as is. So I cut about 250,000 words myself. Well, as it turned out, I was always able to cut about half of every chapter. That was something that I had in, in my head as a goal, but it 
always seemed to work okay, uh, that I didn't have to make any particularly tough cuts. I did end up salvaging some of the cut material in the notes, although absolutely not everything. And the notes were are, are online only, otherwise the book would be quite a bit longer. And then the editor, Michelangelo Matos, cut about 70,000 more words because I got to a point when I just couldn't cut anymore and I turned it in. So I didn't turn the book into publisher until I'd made that first round of cuts. After that, I accepted the vast majority of the cuts, um, almost almost every cut that Michelangelo Matos made to the manuscript. And I made some additions after that because Sonny and I went through the entire manuscript together with me kind of summarizing the narrative. And he made comments or occasionally corrections or additions. And a lot of that material went into the final version of the manuscript. So you did over 200 interviews. You visited numerous archives. When did you know you were done with your research? Were you writing at the same time? Firstly, it was kind of terrifying to send the manuscript to Sunny at that point. I'm sure many biographers can commiserate with that feeling. Like if you could actually send the first draft of your manuscript to the subject with the risk that they would either say, you can't use any of that or you got it all wrong. But yeah, no, it was it was really a, a wonderful experience to go through it with Sunny. And I was just, I, I, there's nothing I could say right now that would explain my relief that he was okay with my quoting from his archive in the book and that kind of thing. That, that was really uh, a good experience just to, to go through it and get his commentary and, and his thoughts on each, each section. I guess I'd been researching for maybe about two and a half or three years, something along those lines. And I'd done the 200 interviews or so. Uh, maybe it was more than 200 interviews at that point and been to all these different archives and I had just a mountain of material to work with. I wasn't sure I was ready to to start writing the book, but at some point, I think my partner just said, you know, you have to start writing this now. And we had a, uh, a, a two-month-old daughter at that point. We were able to get childcare help, which kind of made this book possible because I, I was able to start writing it, although there were many frequent breaks and the schedule was chaotic. Uh, but yeah, then I just started working on it every day at that point. And I continued researching as I wrote. I would never say that the research process is complete. There's still more research I could be doing on Sonny Rollins. But at some point, I think I had the feeling that it, it was time to, to start writing. You've had a lot of really incredible life events during the writing of this book from the birth of both of your children to finishing your dissertation, um, which I understand did not include this biography of Sonny Rollins. And so you've been very busy. And my final question is, Sonny Rollins became a bodybuilder and sort of was very disciplined in the second half of his life, we could say. How do you take care of yourself? You know, I really have let my self-care fall by the wayside in the past eight years. So I, there were definitely days when I thought that uh, all of these projects 
going on simultaneously might push me over the edge. But yeah, I try to to meditate when I can, even if it's for a minute. But for a long time, I had a daily practice of just doing a 10-minute meditation like every night before sleep or sometimes in the morning. If I passed out, I make a point of exercising a little bit every day just to get my blood flowing and not to stay seated as much as possible. I bought us a uh, standing, a sit to stand desk at some point while working on this project because just to be hunched over a keyboard all day, I think is debilitating. So I also bought a kneeling chair and basically invested in all sorts of ergonomic gear. If I was going to have this chapter of working on a long biography in my life. So I I recommend that. Some people like to write on the couch, whatever works really, but it's always been hard to have a balance there. And that's something that I'm hoping to do better at in the future. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. That was my conversation with Dr. Aidan Levy about his book, Saxophone Colossus, The Life and Music of Sonny Rollins. It was published by Hachette in December 2022. This interview was recorded via Zoom on February 21st, 2023. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Jenny Skoog in New York City. Alani Hodge created our theme music, and until next time, thanks so much for listening. Have a great week.